Well, welcome everyone uh, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner here in the Surety Law Group uh, with Wright, Constable, and Skeet in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, as you know, Surety Today is offered only to in-house in claims professionals, and is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. This presentation marks the start of our fourth year of Surety Today. We began uh, May 9, 2016. Since then, we've given out over 450 pins. We have given 36 presentations to almost 1,500 callers. And now with our podcast, we've had over 432 downloads as of today. So we really, really appreciate all the support uh, that you all have given, and we ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues uh, who you think may be interested in calling in so we can continue to grow our numbers and, um, and have a successful uh, podcast going. We also ask that you um, like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. We really want to build up the following on those social media platforms. As I mentioned, if you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording at multiple locations on our uh, Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com as a podcast at iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and also on our microsite, the suretytoday.net. If you have any suggestions for future topics or improvements, please let us know. And we have muted the line uh, as always during the presentation to avoid any background noise. And then we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Uh, this episode is our first uh, with our new conference call provider, Client Instant Access. And uh, so far everything seems to be going really great with uh, CIA as we call them. Uh, they are very, very, very responsive. Their uh, customer service is outstanding. So if you ever need a conference calling service, uh, let these guys know. Uh, they, do, they do these big uh, you know, investor call-ins and things like that. Uh, for, for huge companies, and so they could probably help out uh, if you need it. So today I'm going to talk about the surety's claims against the architect. When I first started practicing law back in 1991, I was an associate at uh, a boutique law firm here in Baltimore that specialized in uh, professional malpractice defense. About half of my cases were legal malpractice defense cases, but the other half were defending architects and engineers against malpractice claims. I practiced with this firm for over five years, and then throughout my career, really, I've, I've from time to time represented architects and engineers, and I've sued architects and engineers. Um, and, and currently, I host a another podcast uh, for uh, the AIA Baltimore chapter. And uh, the highlight of that was uh, last year, I got to interview. Um, uh, the, the founder of, of Gensler, uh, the largest, world's largest architectural firm, uh, Art Gensler, is a, a wonderful human being and a, an amazing guy, what he created there. So anyway, I've, I've got a lot of background in the, uh, in the world of architecture and, uh, and suits against architects, and so I thought this would be a, a good topic for us today. So of course, uh, architects play a critical role in the construction process. They're, typically retained by the project owner, and they develop a plan for the project. They design what the project will look like. They assemble the design team, including 
you know, civil, mechanical, structural, geotechnical engineers. They investigate the project site, subsurface conditions, develop drawings and specifications. Uh, they specify equipment, materials, assist the owner with bidding and evaluating bids, assist the owner with drafting the contracts. Uh, once the project is awarded to a general contractor, architects are typically involved with reviewing and vetting subcontractors, reviewing and approving submittals and shop drawings, responding to requests for information, developing uh, any contract document and addenda, reviewing change orders, reviewing claims, inspecting the work as it's being constructed, uh, although architects would not use the word inspecting, <laughs> certifying payments, uh, certifying level of completion, certifying substantial completion, preparing punch lists, and certifying final completion, and then finally releasing retainage and final payment. So depending on the contractual agreements between the owner and the architect on a given project, the architect may be more or less involved at each step of the process. Sometimes owners are more sophisticated and they handle some aspects in-house. Sometimes owners hire construction managers to handle the construction uh, aspects. When you're considering a claim against an architect, it is important uh, as an initial matter to determine what the architect, uh, what the agreed upon scope was and, and what the obligations of the architect were uh, with respect to the owner. Well, the contract documents between the owner and the general contractor may refer to a number of architect duties. The agreement between the architect and the owner may not have included all of those duties, and the architect consequently was not performing some of those duties. So just be you know, mindful that uh, there can be a difference between what the contract documents say and what actually occurred in practice. Because of the critical role that an architect uh, typically plays in most construction projects, there is a fertile ground uh, for architects to screw up and create a potential claim. I mean, for example, if failure to accurately investigate and describe the site conditions, including underground conditions, how many times uh, you know, have you gotten on a job and the, the boring test results don't show any rock and then you hit rock? improper specification of equipment, materials, and systems, improper certification of payments, improper certification of the level of completion, improper certification of the quality of the work in place, failure to perform tests and inspections, such as you know, the strength of concrete, soil compaction, failure to properly inspect the work during construction to make sure that it conforms to the plans and specs and that there are no defects. Uh, just straight up bad designs, just designs don't, don't work, they're not coordinated, uh, what have you. Delays in uh, approving changes, payments, responding to RFIs, those can really strangle a project. And then over-inspecting. I mean, we've all probably run into that where you've got uh, the architect nit nitpicking everything all over the place. Improper um, release of retainage as well. And, and a lot of these, a lot of these uh, failures of an architect directly relate to you know, how much money is going to be left at the end of the day for the surety if the surety is called in to take over and complete. So of course, there are many, many more potential grounds for a claim against an architect. And, and I've, seen, I've seen a lot in my career representing them uh, or, or going against them. So today, we're going to be discussing the, the nature of claims against architects, some bars and impediments to such claims, practical issues to consider. And finally, we'll discuss some representative cases if there's time. Uh, where the surety has successfully sued a project architect. As an initial matter, uh, one impediment or condition precedent to asserting a claim against an architect 
may be the requirement for a certificate of merit. And not, not every state has these. I know Maryland, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Georgia do. Uh, but for example, a lawsuit uh, can be filed against an architect before it can be filed in those states with a certificate of merit. The plaintiff, the surety, would need to obtain a certification from an expert that the architect failed to meet the standard of care and that such breach proximately caused damages. In these states, if a plaintiff fails to obtain a certificate of merit before filing suit, the case can be dismissed. If that dismissal occurs on the eve of the expiration of the statute of limitations, that could be the end of the case. As a practical matter, if you are planning to sue an architect, you will need an expert to meet your burden of proof and establish what the standard of care was and how it was breached in any event. And this should be done before suit is filed. Thus, the certificate of merit is not too much of a burden, but it is, is really typically designed to weed out frivolous and unfounded claims. Uh, other practical consideration when considering a suit against an architect is the fact that not all architects are deep pockets. A typical architectural practice will have very little of value. They may have some desks, computers, software, but they're typically not capital-rich businesses. Of course, the large national and international architectural firms are a different story. In addition, in many uh, cases, architects are under underinsured um, compared to the potential harm that can be caused. In some instances, architects can have large self-insured retentions that must be satisfied before the insurance kicks in. I've seen I've seen these as large as 500,000. Uh, the architects, um, in that case, could not meet that amount. Finally, uh, architect professional liability policies are self-liquidating, which means that the cost of defense will erode and deplete the coverage amount. So you could easily find that a million-dollar policy could be cut in half after a long, drawn-out litigation, and the, the attorney's fees for the architect are, uh, are eating away at the insurance. When considering a suit against an architect, careful consideration must be given to the type of claim that can be submitted. In the vast majority of situations, the surety is not in direct privity with the architect, which is to say that the architect and the surety do not have a contract with one another. Without a direct contract between the surety and the architect, the surety could not typically sue the architect for breach of contract. Further, in some states, in the absence of privity of contract, the surety could not sue the architect in tort either. In other states, privity is not a bar to a tort claim by the surety against an architect, and in still other states, there's a sort of a middle ground regarding suits by sureties against architects in the absence of privity. So let's, um, let's begin by taking a look at the surety's breach of contract claim against an architect, and then we will take a look at the issue of privity. So it would seem to be common sense that if you are not a party to a contract, you cannot file suit against a party to the contract for breach of that contract. However, there are some workarounds to effectively reach the same result. First, most jurisdictions recognize that uh, the right of a third-party beneficiary to bring suit for breach of contract to which it was an intended beneficiary. A third-party beneficiary arises when two parties enter into an agreement with the intent to confer a direct benefit on a third party, or yeah, a third party or a class of, of parties. In this situation, a duty arises from the contracting parties to the intended beneficiary that will allow the beneficiaries to sue on the contract even though those beneficiaries are not signatories to the contract. The key is that the third party must be either specifically identified or part of a class of persons specifically identified to be a beneficiary of the contractual undertaking. 
So of course, the, the, the best example of a third-party beneficiary in the surety world is the claimant on a payment bond. Right? The payment bond is expressly intended to be for the benefit of the class of persons who provide work, labor, or materials to the project. So in, in third-party beneficiary analysis, it's not enough to merely benefit from another party's contract. Those parties to the contract have to intend that the, to benefit the third party in order to create that third-party third party beneficiary um, status. Another way to assert a breach of contract claim against an architect uh, for a surety is to obtain assignment rights from the party that is in contract with the architect. So when the surety is uh, resolving a claim with the owner, it can obtain the owner's assignment of its rights to pursue the architect as S&E for breach of the contract between the owner and the architect. Some commentators on this approach have observed that there may be a few jurisdictions that restrict or limit the right of taking an assignment of a chosen action or an assignment against a professional. So you'd need to check your uh, specific jurisdictions there. Of course, if the surety has performed under the performance bond and completed the project for the owner, the surety will be subrogated to all of the rights and claims of the owner, including the right to assert a breach of contract claim against the architect for the damages incurred by the surety in completing the project. As with any claim in general, there may be challenges or defenses that an architect can assert against a breach of contract claim. For example, there may be limitations uh, of the architect's duties or scope which can limit the claim. There may be disclaimers in the plans and specs that limit the architect's exposure. In addition, there may be waivers of damages or limitations of damages. Some architects attempt to, um, to limit their damages to the amount of compensation they've been paid. Uh, the net effect of such provisions is that the claim against the architect may not be as robust as the surety would hope, but the surety is bound uh, to the contract terms in the same way that the owner would be. Even with such limitations in contract, there are some jurisdictions, however, that look beyond the contract provisions and impose duties or limit the effect of, of such uh, limitation provisions. In one case, the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that the owner and design professor design professional uh, could not bargain away the, di the design professional's duty to a surety that would step into the shoes of the owner under the doctrine of equitable subrogation. In another case out of uh, Alabama, the court observed that an architect cannot close its eyes on the site and refuse to engage in any inspection procedure whatsoever and then disclaim liability for the cost of the defects. Uh, finally, in the um, uh, Mississippi case, the court observed that an architect certifying payments despite direct knowledge of construction problems could not delegate its duty to exercise ordinary professional skill and competence. Thus, even in the face of contractual limitations, there are some jurisdictions that will uh, still impose that contractual duty on the architect. So let's, let's, uh, let's turn our consideration then to negligence claims. And this is where you'll get you know, access to the insurance policies, uh, which, which can make the claims more attractive. Sometimes a direct contract action is not sufficient. One of the parties could be insolvent or bankrupt. The contractual terms may not be favorable, as we just discussed. The owner may want to preserve its good relationship, quote unquote, with the architect and refuse any assignments, etc. In such circumstances, the surety may wish to consider a claim for professional negligence directly against the architect. To establish a claim for negligence, the surety must prove the following traditional negligence elements that the defendant, an architect, owed a duty to the plaintiff, the surety, that the architect breached that duty, that the surety suffered injury or loss, and that the surety's injury approximately resulted from the architect's breach of duty. 
Now, the key issue with a claim for negligence by a surety against an architect is whether the architect owes a duty of care to the surety. In general, a design professional, such as an architect or an engineer, owes a duty to their client to exercise their skill, judgment, ability, and taste reasonably in the same manner that a prudent design professional similarly situated would have performed. However, in some cases, like in Maryland, for example, the courts have held that an architect does not owe a duty to any party that the architect is not in direct privity of contract with. This is known as the uh, strict privity approach. Under the strict privity uh, approach, a surety could not file a direct suit for negligence against an architect that the surety was not in contract with. The strict privity um, jurisdictions adhere to this approach in part to safeguard the distinction between contract law and tort law. The common refrain is that the court does not wish to see the law of contract drown in a sea of torts. Courts have also noted that it's not fair or just to subject a design professional to indeterminate liability to indeterminate claimants. Gradually over time, many jurisdictions have moved away from strict privity and other courts have created exceptions to privity. Thus, in cases where there's a property damage or a personal injury caused by the negligent party, then privity will, will not bar suit in those kinds of circumstances. In Maryland, the court uh, recognized an exception for the imminent risk of personal injury or property damage. In the Maryland case, uh, certain parts of a condominium building were designed to meet the, uh, were, I'm sorry, were, were not designed to meet the applicable fire code. And so um, the condominium association was held uh, uh, able to sue the architect for the cost of repairing the negligently designed areas to prevent potential injuries and, and uh, property damage. So uh, you've got the strict privity approach on the one side, and then on the other side, there's this uh, no privity foreseeability approach. So some jurisdictions have just completely abandoned privity entirely and will permit a non-client to recover for negligence directly if the resulting injury or loss was foreseeable. So, so many courts have adopted this approach because they assert that a design professional owes a duty to his client but also has a responsibility to others because of the professional character of uh, his or her work. The requirements of foreseeability, reliance, and harm are believed to be sufficient requirements you know, to limit the exposure of the design professional. Still, there's a, uh, other jurisdictions have, have adopted sort of uh, middle grounds, and they, they call it near privity, uh, things like that. There's, there's also the restatement approach uh, which Maryland, um, you know, as I said before, is a strict privity state, but they, they got very close to, a drop the, to, to adopting the, um, the, the uh, restatement approach. So in these jurisdictions, uh, the restatement second of torts uh, entitled information negligently supplied for the guidance of others represents a more relaxed uh, standard than strict privity. Under section 522, an architect who in the course of employment in their pr profession for which payment is expected, supplies false information for the guidance of others, is subject to liability for damage caused by the justifiable reliance upon the information if there is a failure to exercise reasonable care or competence in obtaining or communicating the information where the party suffering the loss was one of a limited group of persons for whose benefit the architect intended to provide guidance or knows that the recipient intends to supply such others and that the architect intends the information to influence or knows that the recipient so intends. So, you know, the restatement's complicated. That's sort of a, 
a summary of it, so even the summary is complicated. But basically, the restatement allows for recovery not only by those parties to whom the architect intends to influence directly, i.e., its client, but also uh, by those whom the architect knows his client intends to influence. There is no requirement for privity between the injured party and the architect's client as long as the architect has reason to know that the client will pass on the information. And of course, in a typical construction project, that's exactly what you have, right? You got the, the architect makes the design, makes the plans, the specifications, gives it to the owner with the express intent that the owner is going to turn around and give it to all the parties downstream to build the building. So it, it fits in there uh, neatly. And so the, there's also a, there's also a uh, note under Section 522 that talks about the application of 522 in, in the construction uh, context. So, you know, so you have that, uh, you have that as a potential basis, and there are several courts that have adopted um, the 522 as their as their rule for for claims against architects. So then, you know, assuming you've got uh, you've got no privity problem, and 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 even even you've got a or you've got a contract uh, avenue to pursue. Lurking out there is also the economic loss rule. So uh, many jurisdictions uh, uh, create this uh, potential impediment to a direct claim against the architect um, by, by having and applying this economic, economic loss rule. Essentially, uh, the doctrine is based on the idea that purely economic interests are protected by contract principles rather than tort principles. An economic loss is the loss of an expectancy interest created by contract. Thus, such damages as diminution of value, cost of repairs, lost profit, cost of completing work due to delays or impacts, uh, all of these would be construed or considered rather as uh, economic losses. So thus, under the doctrine, uh, a person who suffers only economic damages through the failure of another person to exercise reasonable care has no tort cause of action against the, per the person that caused the damage. The doctrine rests on the assumption that tort law uh, is, implements policies of compensation, deterrence, loss distribution, and fairness, and it's primarily designed to redress personal injury and physical damages. While the assumption under contract law is that it's designed to redress the loss of expectations that arise from the failure to provide bargain for promises. Where parties are free to allocate risk by contract, contract law should govern instead of tort law. Uh, that's what these jurisdictions would hold. While similar to privity, the economic loss rule is distinct and could apply in a particular jurisdiction to bar the surety's claim. And so, of course, you know, typical construction project is, you know, the rights of the parties are defined by contracts. Everyone has their contracts with their particular parties, and they set out their rights and remedies, and so that's uh, that's what the courts in, in these jurisdictions applying economic loss rules say, you know, should govern. You if, you, if you anticipate having a loss caused by a design error, whatever, then that should be part of your bargain for rights in your contract with the owner. So, okay, let's uh, take a minute here, go through some, um, go through some cases real quick uh, that that where where sureties have been. Uh, making claims against architects. So the first one would be State versus Mulvaney. Now that's a case out of Mississippi in which the court upheld a surety's right to bring a negligence claim against an architect for negligently approving the release of retainage. The 
court awarded the surety the amount of the retainage that was negligently released. With respect to the privity issue, the court stated, the contractual relationship between the architect and the surety was not requisite to the existence of this duty. It arose out of the general contractual arrangements which contain mutually interdependent rights and obligations. In the case of uh, Peerless Insurance Company versus Searney and Associates, uh, that's out of uh, Minnesota. A surety uh, sued an architect for negligently certifying payment to the contractor. The court held that the surety was subrogated to the owner's rights against the architect and found that the architect's negligence was the sole proximate cause of the surety's loss. Um, the court went on to say that, quote, privative contract between plaintiff and defendant was not a prerequisite to the existence of the defendant architect's duty in the foregoing respect. For the reason that said architect's duty protect the owner and the subrogated surety arose out of the general and mutual contractual arrangements, which included resulting interdependent rights and obligations. So what the courts are saying there, they're getting at this concept that you know, the contract balance is basically security for the surety. So it's there uh, for the surety to rely on if the surety has to come in upon default and complete the project. So this security interest is sitting there. The owner has an obligation to protect it. And then the courts are saying, so does the architect, who is the owner's agent. And so when you have these kinds of cases where they're, you know, miscertifying payments, they're releasing retainage, they're directly impacting that security that the owner is holding for the surety, and so they, so they allow the claims. Uh, another case of uh, Calendro Development Inc. versus R.M. Butler contractors, the court um, held that a surety could assert a cause of action against an architect or an engineer for failing to adequately inspect work in progress, authorizing payments for defective work, failing to recommend that the owner would uh, withhold sufficient funds to correct defects, and uh, neglecting to halt work until defects were corrected. The court stated, uh, an engineer or architect must be deemed and held to know that his services are for the protection, not only of the interests of the owner, but also the surety on the contractor's bond. We are also of the view that the nature of the relationship between surety and engineer is tantamount to one of privity. Importantly, the, uh, the Calandro court also held that the degree of care owed by an engineer to a surety is the same as that owed to the owner. Uh, another case, uh, Aetna Insurance Company versus Helmuth, Abada, and Kassebaum. Uh, that's a case out of uh, the Eighth Circuit. The court allowed the surety to recover for losses sustained by reason of an architect's negligent supervision of construction when the architect was obligated by contract to supervise that construction. In that case, the contractor was in financial difficulty and was using progress payments to pay judgments resulting from other projects uh, the classic uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, rather than to pay his subs and suppliers on the bonded job. So the surety was forced to provide financial assistance to the contractor and to pay certain claims of subs and suppliers. Surety alleged that the architect was negligent because it made no effort to ascertain how the contractor was allocating its progress payments, even after being put on notice that subcontractors and suppliers were not being paid. The court adopted the general negligence standard and therefore rejected the architect's lack of privity defense. So those are just some of the many, many, many cases that are out there, um, and there are a lot of um, a lot of um, prior articles and authorities and book chapters and so forth. And uh, we can, 
after the call, we'll send around a, uh, a list of those uh, authorities that you could check out and, uh, and get further information on this if you need. So uh, before I open up the line for any questions, I want to uh, let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, June 10th at 12.30 Eastern Time. And I will be joined by my special guest, Douglas Allen, a forensic accountant with Forcon, uh, Forcon International, to uh, discuss the seven deadly sins of the principal. If you were down at the Southern Conference in New Orleans, Doug spoke. And uh, when, when I heard him speak, I said, I've got to have that guy come and do a surety today. He did a tremendous job, very funny, and uh, hopefully we can, we can reproduce that. So upcoming events in the surety industry, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association golf outing will be held on June 3rd. And we've got a, we've got a great gift. It's, a, it's a, one of those rolling soft-sided coolers that uh, I'm sure will be, be a big hit with everybody. Uh, the Chicago Surety Claims Association lunch meeting will be held on May 16. And will be followed by the DRI Fidelity Surety Roundtable, which will take place on May 17th. The Atlanta Surety Claim Association lunch meeting will be held on May 23rd. The Eastern Bond Claims Conference will be held on June 9th and 10th in New Jersey. The Surety Claims Institute annual meeting will be held on June 19th through the 21st at St. Simon Island in Georgia. So thanks so much uh, for joining me today, and I look forward to speaking with you again next month. And let me, um, let me see if I can open up the lines here with our new system without, you know. The conference is now in talk mode. Okay, so if there are any questions, now's the time. Uh, Mike, I, I've got a question. Uh, Ken Branson from the Hartford. Uh, have you ever seen or had any success in a negligence case where uh, you'd actually go after the architect uh, personally, similar to how CPAs have been attacked in the past? Sure, sure, absolutely. And in fact, um, and I don't know if they're in other jurisdictions, but in Maryland, we actually have a statute that specifically says that uh, a professional, including architects, cannot uh, shield themselves from liability by being in a corporate form. So if they're an LLC, LLP, whatever they are, they are still personally liable under Maryland law, in addition to the uh, you know to the corporate entity as well. So yeah, there's I'm sure there's um, I'm sure there's personal liability there in other jurisdictions too. Thank you. Okay, everybody, uh, look forward to speaking with you again next month. Take care. Bye bye.